0: If you enjoy listening to clinical conversations, why not become a member of the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh? Our membership provides you with access to the RCPE educational portal, the live evening medical updates, and you have options to view the symposia both in person or online. If you would like to learn more about this, please go to the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh website. Everybody and welcome to this episode of Clinical Conversations. My name is Dr. Hannah Preston and I am one of the trainees and members committee team within the education department and it's my pleasure to introduce today Dr. McLaren. Dr. McLaren is a consultant in respiratory medicine at St. John's Hospital in Livingston, Edinburgh. She has a particular interest in the integrated management of chronic lung disease, particularly COPD and bronchiectasis. And in today's episode, we're going to cover non-invasive ventilation. So thank you very much for agreeing to chat with us today. And I thought we could just start by going into really what NIV is, how it works, and then we can start off the conversation after that just covering the basics. Well thank you very much for having me Hannah. So I mean NIV
1: on a very basic level is is what it says in the tin so it's non-invasive ventilation so you are ventilating a patient using a tight-fitting mask so it's non-invasive and I think it's probably worthwhile starting off with sort of clarifying some terminology that we're going to use and, and what we're going to mainly be talking about So NIV can encompass both CPAP, which is continuous positive airway pressure, and BiPAP. And we'll go back to that in a moment when we're starting to talk about how it works. It can also be used in the acute setting and then the domiciliary setting. Now, home ventilation is a huge service. I think we could have another podcast on that another time. But for the purposes of the audience, which I think most of these are medical trainees, I was going to focus on acute NIV or NIV in in the acute setting. Going back to the division between CPAP and BiPAP, I think it's important to discuss CPAP, particularly when we're talking about how it works, but I'll be focusing again mostly on when I talk about acute NIV and referring to BiPAP for acute hypercapnic respiratory failure. So CPAP is continuous positive airway pressure. And what that is, is applying through the use of a, a tightly fitted face mask a positive pressure at a certain level when you reach end expiration. And what that does is that splints open the lower airways and it recruits alveola. And by recruiting alveola, you increase oxygen and increase of gas exchange. But you also decrease sort of VQ shunts. So you've got areas in the lung that may be well perfused but aren't ventilating with it because they're collapsed down for various reasons, whether that be infection, atelectasis, pulmonary edema. And by splinting the airways open and recruiting the alveola, through the use of positive end expiratory pressure, you improve oxygenation and actually, in some instances, push so fluid out. That's CPAP. You now, the reason I mentioned CPAP first is because it relates to also how BiPAP works. And BiPAP is bi-level positive airway air pressure, and it's worthwhile jumping straight into the parameters. I think we'll probably talk a bit about settings a bit later, but you know, it's worthwhile sort of starting right from the beginning because the settings are, are relevant to how it works. So there are two settings, two pressure settings in bi-level, so IPAP and EPAP, so that's inspiratory positive airway pressure and expiratory positive airway pressure. Now, the expiratory positive airway pressure is really used sort of in a you know an equivalent way as we use PEEP. So PEEP is the sort of invasive ventilator of what EPAP is in the non-invasive ventilators, and that is N positive airway pressure, and that works very much the same as PEEP does in CPAP, so it recruits alveola, keeps the airways open. You then have IPAP, which is your Inspiratory positive area pressure and the levels we're talking about in terms of centimeters of water are the pressures that we're blowing into the lungs at peak inspiration. What that does is that gives an assist or an extra push as the patient breathes in, so it augments their breath in. And that helps patients firstly with you know work of breathing. These are patients who are of respiratory muscle fatigue often in various circumstances. And it also improves tidal volume. But before we talk about tidal volume, and actually increase ventilation and blowing off the CO2, it's worthwhile adding in one sort of final number that you, know, you need to know about when we're talking about how it works is, is pressure support. And pressure support, it's the difference between IPAP and EPAP. So the, the calculation is pressure support equals IPAP minus EPAP. So if you are ventilating a patient at 12 over 4, and you, so that's an IPAP of 12 and an EPAP of 4, then your pressure support would be 8 centimetres of water. And it is that pressure difference that is going to increase or decrease a patient's tidal volume. And if you have better tidal volumes in these patients, you're aiding ventilation per breath and you're helping them to blow off carbon dioxide. So that's the part that addresses the acute hypercapnia.
0: Now, we mentioned it briefly within that, and I think that is such a good introduction to what NIV is. And as you said, we're going to go down the route of BiPAP. So Typically, a trainee might encounter this in an on-call shift, overnight, and you mentioned that it involved a patient with acute hypercapnic respiratory failure. So when might someone need NIV? What are the indications that someone might be requiring this?
1: Yeah, on a very basic parameter level, you know, you would have uh, respiratory acidosis, so a type 2 respiratory failure, and you would want it to be decompensated. So, you would want a low pH, pH less than 7.3, or elevated hydrogen ions. And that's at a very basic level. And you'd be expecting them to have a raised respiratory rate as well. Because obviously, you can have decompensated type 2 respiratory failure in lots of situations. You're more commonly looking at patients who have got chronic lung disease, most often COPD, and it's an acute exacerbation of their COPD. You do sometimes get it in patients who've got obesity, hypoventilation syndrome, and there's quite a lot of overlap with our population changing. We have more multimorbid obese patients with lung disease. And so you're getting sort of patients who don't fall into clear categories. It's probably more important to also look at the patients we wouldn't want to be putting on NIV or wouldn't want to be putting on NIV in the ward setting. We'll probably talk about the differences about, you know, settings and levels of of care. So you wouldn't want to be putting a patient on NIV if they have asthma or pneumonia, or those certainly are those patients that you would want to be discussing with intensive care. The other people you wouldn't want to be putting on an are those who are retaining oxygen or are in type 2 respiratory failure because they're hypoventilating because maybe a central reason, whether that be intoxication or a massive brain stem lesion, a stroke, encephalopathy from comorbidities. So it's important to differentiate between the patients who are going into type 2 respiratory failure because of and exacerbation of their chronic lung disease, who would be appropriate for NIV, and those whose type 2 respiratory failure are more like a sequelae of something else or another sort of organ dysfunction.
0: Great, that's really good information. And I guess when would NIV suit a patient, for example, with their exacerbation of COPD? Mm-hmm. We need to decide when the time is right to put them on NIV after we've mm-hmm. tried our basic measures and i guess we need to have those discussions with the patient and with the team about what their level of care is and i guess whether you know going through to mechanical ventilation if NIV doesn't work for them is suitable or whether this mm-hmm. is their ceiling of care
1: absolutely and so you know people often ask about setup and i think that the bit that really we need to focus on and involves our brain power the most is not the logistics of the setup, but the stages we need to get to, so the sort of almost a psychological setup before we, we decide where we're putting the patient and what settings we're starting them on. And, and you know as you asked, the first of all, the first thing is, is this indicated? So not just are they the right patient, but do they have any contraindications? And contraindications are you know split in guidance into relative and absolute, and yes, there are a few absolutes, so facial deformity burns upper area obstruction. The other ones are relative contraindications. So you would want to drain a pneumothorax. You want to get a chest x-ray before you start. You would want to not have low GCS. It's, it's a contraindication, but it has shown in certain patients with reduced GCS to be effective. You know, vomiting, cognitive impairment, all of these things are relative contraindications. But I think it then becomes a question about sort of where are our ceilings of care and what we can offer them. And sometimes ward level NIV becomes a little bit of a compromise of, you know, contraindications versus offering them a potentially rescue treatment while you treat their bronchospasm or their acute exacerbation. So the first question is always, is it indicated? Is it the right patient? Do they have any contraindications? The next thing, as you mentioned, is, is ceilings of care. And I think that that is one of the biggest, most important things that needs to be considered when you have a patient who comes in. And the thing is, is you need to consider it really quickly because these people are sick. Mm-hmm. And so once you're starting your medical management, which you need to ensure has actually been commenced and been given, that's your next big question. And it's really important to consider because we have lots of data and lots of research that has said for people with an acute exacerbation of COPD, they do better in the short term and actually in their long term if you can give them non-invasive ventilation rather than invasive ventilation in the acute exacerbation. So we know that the research says that. But what we also know is that hasn't been translated to real world data. So that actually patients who are, receive NIV on the ward for acute exacerbations of COPD are not doing as well as the research, the RCTs have shown they should. And there is a concern that perhaps by the development of ward level NIV, we are potentially limiting some patients with COPD to higher level settings where they would receive more intensive monitoring and more intensive nursing care and all the benefits that ICU and HDU level care provides. So that's why it's really important to get the setting and the ceilings of care in place at the beginning. There's also good evidence that we have this thing called therapeutic nihilism. And what that means is that clinicians underestimate how well patients with COPD will do. Now, I am absolutely not advocating that we need to discuss or need to escalate every patient with COPD. There are many, many, and the population is, is expanding in this way to more frail, more comorbid patients. There are many patients with COPD for whom it would be totally inappropriate and arguably even cruel to be exposing them to the invasive monitoring and, and treatments that ATU and ITU-level care involves. But we know that we underestimate how well some COPD patients can do with invasive ventilation and with NIV. And so we need to be careful with that when we're discussing ceilings of care. And COP is a massive spectrum of disease from patients who have COPD and are working and a little bit breathless, but actually engaging in pulmonary rehab or exercises, to those who are absolutely end-stage advanced disease. And so there were two questions that I always ask when I'm discussing ceilings of care and, and levels of treatment is one is what do we do if niv fails mm-hmm. and the second question is if we didn't have a pathway for acute niv on a ward level a ward level with enhanced nursing which we'll talk about in a second where would this patient be because if this is a you know a relatively young relatively fit patient who has copd and has had come in with come in with their first presentation due to a viral or infective exacerbation of copd and they presented quite late and they've sought medical help rather late, would they be on higher level on an HDU or an ICU level if you didn't have this pathway? Because what we do know is that if you need invasive ventilation, any delay to that results in poorer outcomes. And so what you don't want is to have a patient in a ward-level setting who is deteriorating on NIV, who would be appropriate and who you would, in theory, ventilate invasively, but not in the right place. And not benefiting as I said from all the other things we know that you get from an admission to ICU or HDU. That doesn't really answer your question which one would go but I think the trouble is is we have to do an individualized patient plan for every patient. You know there is some very good generic scoring you know systems that we use whether that be Apache, BOLD, clinical frailty indicator scores. Scoring is always useful. I always take into account their functional status, their comorbidities, what their spirometry was, although again, it has to be a sort of a mixed picture. Patient wishes, whether it's been their first presentation, you know, have they had recurrent interactions with healthcare over their respiratory disease or this is very much a first presentation. So it's really important to consider on the individual patient a personalized plan. And then, as you said, discuss it with the patients. Make sure that you have discussed it with patients and the next of kin and explained the ceiling of care. The other thing I think sometimes probably is forgotten in the initiation of NIV is to actually explain to the patient what's going on. And that's also the medical registrar that, that, you know, going down to see them in A&E when they're an extremist. It's really important that you explain what is going to happen to them because I don't know if you've ever put an NIV mask on. You're nodding. But to those who haven't, who are listening and haven't, it's like going along the motorway at 60, 70 miles an hour, winding down the window and sticking your head out. And you're sticking your head out intermittently, but you're also not getting that moment where you have reprieve to breathe out. So it's really, really anxiety-inducing in a situation where patients are really hyper-expanded. They can't breathe. They're panicking. They're in hospital. So it's really important that, you know, you talk to them about settings of care, but you also explain to them about the fitted mask and you take your time. You have that time, even in extremis, because that will hopefully help, you know, with asynchronously and, and patient tolerance of the mask as you start to initiate and set up the machine.
0: Yeah, just coming on from that, I think that's a really, you know, really valuable explanation of what you just said, with patient wishes. And sometimes if a patient has, certainly if they've been on an NIV before, they know how it feels, they know what they've been through, or they know someone who's been on it. Sometimes it just takes that longer element of discussion because mm. to start with they think, no, I definitely don't want to go on again again. Mm-hmm. It was a horrible experience. But then they actually then start to remember mm. that they ended up tolerating it quite well or they managed to come off it quite quickly. Mm-hmm. And actually these patients can really go from looking that in extremis they look like they could die to kind of turning around in a pretty short space of time with the NIV. So I guess for someone who is seeing the patient and the decision is, yes, this patient needs NIV, should we just run through the practical steps of how you set up the NIV and when people are saying, oh, what do you want the IPAP on? What do you want the EPAP on? Should we just go through the, the basics of that?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. So obviously, your first thing is you need to get them into the right setting. And it does get started in a That's not ideal because you need to move them to, to an appropriate setting. And I mentioned ward-based, banded that around. This, when I refer to NIV in a ward-based setting, I mean it in an enhanced monitoring ward. So the first thing is, you know, if you're going onto to medical registrar nights at a new hospital, you really want to know exactly where they deliver NIV because you need to have nurses who are proficient in, in setting it up and managing it and monitoring it because you will need continuous monitoring while patients are on NIV. And you need to have patients at setting. So, I mean, I actually looked at the BTS recommendations for the level of nursing for ward level NIV. And the the recommendation was, you know, one nurse to two NIV patients, which is very high. But that's what we should be aiming for, particularly if we want to deliver the nursing interventions that's going to help them get through this. So once you've got a patient in an appropriate setting, you want to get them set up on the machine. So it's difficult because there are different ventilators for different trusses and there's different tubing setups but essentially you have a ventilator and it shouldn't be an invasive ventilator it should be a ventilator that can be used for non-invasive ventilation you have some tubing there is normally a bacterial filter that has changed exactly where that is in recent sort of covid times there is normally some oxygen that's entrained either into the machine or into the tubing there can be a humidifier circuit again that changed slightly with with covid and the discussions around aerosol generation procedures. And then you have the mask. And the mask can be an oral facial, facial mask, sorry, or a nasal mask. So that's the one that fits around your nose and mouth. A Face mask, nasal pillows. You can even have a hood or a helmet. And it's really important to get that right and the patient comfortable with that. There are cutouts. There's little um, stencils that come with a lot of the facial masks that you can try on the patient to see which one fits them but also don't be afraid to try the size up and the size down if you're getting a lot of leak. Moving on to some settings and numbers and, and being asked you know, to write an NIV prescription. So if you have previous prescriptions and previous you know, documentation of what they've been on before, then I would, and what not work for them, then I would start with that. But let's pretend we haven't. This is the first presentation of acute hypercapnic respiratory failure. And I would probably start on an, EPAP, on an IPAP of around 12 and an EPAP of 4. But, and what we see a lot is people started on that and then we wait to do a gas in an hour. And I would not do that. What I'd say to you is actually, you need to get the IPAP up in the next 10 to 30 minutes to slowly, going along with patient tolerance and explanation, increase your IPAP up to 16 to 20. And with that, you can increase the EPAP up from four to six potentially, or you can keep it at four. So I'd get up to an IPAP of 16 to 20 and an EPAP between four and six. And then you'd want to do your gas at one hour, if there's any clinical change, ongoing ABG or preferably CBG. If you have a CBG facility, it's much better for the patients. I wouldn't discuss doing VBGs, but you know ABG or CBG monitoring is the things you'd be wanting to do. There are other things you look at on the screen as well, though. So you know we have backup rates. So we normally ventilate patients via non-invasive ventilation using ST mode, and that's spontaneous timed, and that means that the patient the inspiratory pressures are triggered when the patient breathes in. And so the breathing rate should be at the rate the patient's breathing. But if they have periods of apnea, or in, then you might want to set a backup rate, or you do set a backup rate for everyone. And normally, particularly in the very, very, the patient who's got a high respiratory rate, you'd want to set a backup rate of about 16, 12 to 16. That can be brought down as the patient comfort and work of breathing improves. The other things you would want to look at, so there's an I to E ratio. Now, these things you don't necessarily need to write in your initial prescription, but it's worthwhile being aware as a medical registrar and looking after these patients, you know, out of hours. An ITE is the inspiratory to expiratory ratio. And for patients who have a lot of bronchospasm and prolonged expiratory time, you may want to set it at one to two, even one to three. The standard setup for most NIV protocols in hospitals is, is start at one to two, and we can change that. Potentially for people with BCIV ventilation and those or neuromuscular disease, you can set it at one-to-one. One. But that's just to be aware of the ITE time. There's also the rise time, and that is basically how quickly we reach peak inspiratory pressures. And so if someone is breathing very quickly, you want to get to that peak inspiratory pressure quite quickly, otherwise you're going to get disynchrony with the machine and with the patient trying to breathe. You'll also be aware of the oxygenation of the patient. So patients should be on continuous SATS monitoring, and normally I would aim For SATs, you know, people ask you, well, what oxygen they want to give you. And I would say, well, then train it aiming for SATs between 88 to 92.
0: Wonderful. That's all really helpful. Then we mentioned some things that might not work right, right? So the asynchrony Hmm. or the leaking of the mask. What are your common problems that you come across with NIV? What are your simple tips and tricks how to sort them? And I guess if they're not working, who do we need to speak to and what do we need to think about?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, there's various things that, you know, you encounter, you've, in, you've initiated the patient and you've, you've got the nurse and monitoring, you're, you're going back and you're monitoring this patient. Often, you know, the patient, so we suppose we start with blood gases, the first thing would be sort of persistently low oxygen on NIV. And there is a response to just increase the FiO2 that you're delivering to the patient. And and while that can be something, I think that, we, you know, given the fact you're ventilating this patient, you're doing quite an invasive, a non-invasive, but you're doing quite an active treatment, I think there are other steps I would take first. So I would probably, particularly in our bigger patients these days, or those who have often concurrent to so an element of heart failure with their, you know, COPD, I would increase the EPAP because that, again, as we talked about, is going to keep the airways open, recruit more alveoli, and improve oxygenation that way. If you increase the EPAP, just remember to increase your IPAP, because the last thing you want to do with the patient who's struggling on NIV is, is narrow that pressure support and narrow that tidal volume. And, and that would, in theory, sort of reduce your ability to blow off your CO2. So if you increase the EPAP, just remember to increase your IPAP. You can increase the entrained oxygen. and it's also worthwhile assessing the patient. Are they are they panicking? Are they sinking with the machine? The other thing in the gases that's commonly sort of not improving or, or potentially getting worse is your CO2. If your CO2 is getting worse and patients are not, their respiratory rates not coming down, then that's actually a really bad prognostic sign within the first sort of four hours. Because, you know, as you mentioned, these patients can often look very comfortable much quite quickly on NIV. And that's one of the biggest prognostic sort of indicators of how well the patient's going to do during this acute episode is whether they respond in the first four hours. So, you know, if your CO2 is, is the same or is rising or is not improving as much as possible, then, you know, you want to look at... Well, are we ventilating them adequately? And you want to look at their chest wall. Is it moving? Is there a big leak? Now, NIV is always going to have a small leak. If you have zero leak, then I would argue perhaps you have the face mask on a bit too tight. We I mean, don't change it. The patient's comfortable and it's, they've not got any signs of you know, pressure on their face. But I, I would not be aiming for a zero leak in NIV. You know, anything up to about 40 miles a minute, I would accept as, as part of the, the system. But if you have a big leak, then you're going to need to readdress you know, patient positioning, try a different mask, try a big one, a smaller one. Make sure the patient isn't in fixed flexion of their neck. That can often be a cause of a variable leak and a variable upper area obstruction. So try and encourage the nurses, encourage the patient to, to not have a forward flexion in their neck. And then if you have a, an ongoing problem with sort of not getting rid of the CO2 at a rate you would expect, and, and the patient seems to be tolerating it and the patient seems to not have a huge leak, then I would consider increasing your IPAP. So that is again increasing the pressure support to increase the tidal volume and the ventilation, which should in theory help reduce your hypercapnia. The other things we get are are the agitated patients. So, you know, we mentioned at the beginning that some of the you know relative contraindications are confusion, cognitive impairment. Now, again, you know, in real-time work in the on the medical tape, you know, lots of patients are confused. We have lots of patients with mild to more moderate cognitive impairment and in theory you know you don't on paper these patients wouldn't be appropriate but actually in real-time work it it is perfectly acceptable and appropriate to consider sort of ways of delivering NIV to to a patient who you think will get a good response from it who has an acute exacerbation of airways disease and we need to subbridge them until that point if they are very confused and agitated of course you do all the non-medication sort of ways of calming the patient good nursing care take the mask off show them what it's like show them what the mask is allow it to put it back to their face all those kind of tricks just to encourage people to sort of to basically have more confidence and more trust in the system because it's a scary experience the use of sedation is controversial on ward settings now they use sedation a lot in niv in in hdu and itu settings and actually they use infusions of remifentanil and other other sedatives very successfully If you're going to use sedation in patients on NIV, then I think that you just need to be aware that need much more intensive monitoring. And so things like low-dose opiates would probably be my medication of choice, but also low-dose benzos can be used, particularly in the distressed patient, particularly in those who you would not go on to escalate beyond NIV. You do not want the patient to be distressed whether the NIV is going to be successful or not. And so that can be considered not as first line managing their agitation and confusion, but certainly can be considered if, if
0: all other techniques are not working. Great. That's really helpful. Thank you. Is this a point where the respiratory team should be involved in the mm. cleaning regime of the patient? Or can that be initiated by the medical team? When should we do it? How should we do it?
1: So I suppose it's probably responded to two ways. That, you know, one, one is the question about when should respiratory be involved. And as with everything, you know, we know no one likes to be involved right at the end. I think that you know, it depends on your provision of respiratory services out of hours. I don't. I think it's not inappropriate, and I think it's very common that you don't have respiratory, you may not have a respiratory specialist out of hours. I do think in hours, if you have a patient on acute NIV, I would ask for respiratory input at the first in hours, you know, whether it be 8am, 9am on a Monday morning, or whether it be the next morning, whatever it is, I would let respiratory know in hours. I suppose if you don't have access to them, if it's over a weekend, you want to make those decisions, then the general guidance is if a patient is responding so their acidosis is improving, their work of breathing there is reducing, you're aiming obviously for normal capnia, but some people will have chronic retention of CO2. So if all their numbers are improving, they're feeling better and their underlying medical issue is improving, then you want to, as you said, you want to think about weaning. The recommendation generally for the first 24 hours, we would aim for patients to be on NIV semi-continuously. And when I say semi-continuously is that even in RCTs, when the intent has been for the patient to be on it for 24 hours a day, the actual number of hours the patients are on are between seven hours a day and 20 hours a day. So if you say semi-continuous you know, breaks for snacks, you're still going to need to go to the commode, get changed. So we normally aim for as much as possible in the first 24 hours. Then in the straightforward cases, or the cases that behave in, I'm going to use inverted commas here, it's a typical pattern. You would want to think about weaning over the next two to three days. And I would, Take my approach to weaning is giving breaks during the day with the aim of still keeping patients continuous on NLV overnight. So, whether that be four hours on, four hours off during the day, or three hours on, a break for lunch, three hours on again, really, sort of, there's no evidence exactly what's right. But the general approach is wean intermittently during the day, keep continuous overnight, keep monitoring for hypercapnia. So you would want to be repeating some CBGs and ABGs or ABGs as you do this process. And then, if a patient has been off it, successfully for the whole of the day then I would have you know and I've had it overnight then the next morning I would aim to have them off it for 24 hours moving forward from there.
0: Great that's really useful to know and I guess a flip reverse that you've got a patient who isn't tolerating NIV or their CO2 is not improving or they're you know they're getting worse or they're clearly not comfortable. Mm -hmm. At what point should we be thinking actually carrying on with this is not in the patient's Mm -hmm. best Mm -hmm. interest?
1: I mean, that's a very good question. And there's probably not a a magic answer in the same way that, you know, escalation plans and and treatment location has to be individualized to the patient. We know, as I said before, that if they are not responding in any way or if they are deteriorating in the first four hours and you have used all the techniques that we've talked about, changing the settings, giving them some sedation, looking at the mask, all of that kind of stuff, and the patient is continually deteriorating, you want to by this point have ceilings of care in place. So if you were waiting this long for a patient, you would then escalate. I think you're waiting far too long. I think you, know, you want those patients to be in a different place rather than a ward. If you have patients who, for whom the ceiling of care is NIV, and they are deteriorating, and they are distressed, and they are not responding, then it's the same as withdrawal of any other active treatment. You know You want to discuss it with the patient, with the next of kin, particularly these patients are confused and they're becoming more drowsy, you would want to have an idea of the patient's functional status and that actually is this just a pre-terminal presentation. And those patients you actually want to ideally prevent putting on in the first place, but, you know, some of these things are not apparent when patients are sitting in the EED for four hours. So when people are getting more acidotic, more drowsy, not responding to treatment, then at that point I would probably start having discussions with, with next of kin. And also people keep pulling it off, you know, if someone has capacity and you have tried everything, and they have not really tolerated NIV in the past, and they know that this will most likely or potentially result in death, then patients can also refuse it. You know, it's not particularly pleasant treatment. Some people really take to it, but other patients who have recurrent exacerbations and recurrent episodes of hypercapnia never do. So discussions with the patient if possible, discussions with the relatives. And then I'd probably certainly overlay, if you were going to stop NIV, I would make sure that You have some of your anticipatory care prescribing all Mm -hmm. set up already. You know, give that before you remove the mask because you want it to be as seamless and as comfortable for the patient as possible. You don't want them to be uncomfortable when you
0: remove the mask. Great, that's really helpful. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I guess just to wrap things up, because this has been a really interesting and educational session, I think for everybody who's going to get to listen to it, what would be your top tips for trainees and medical registrars when dealing with NIV? Well
1: I think the thing that's going to be more complicated rather than settings and troubleshooting is going to be making the initial decisions and be aware that there is data to suggest that we underestimate patients survival with two have acute exacerbations of COPD. Don't (laughs) don't discuss them all with your critical care colleagues but if you have any doubt ask a friend ask a critical care you know ask your, your intensivist what they think ramp up the pressures, start on 12 over 10, but don't leave them on 12 over 10 for the next hour. Try and increase particularly that IPAP. And then the final thing I think we haven't touched on, but obviously presenting with acute hypocafenic respiratory failure in lung disease is a marker of advanced disease and a poor prognostic cater in terms of survival. So it's very variable what the evidence says, but you know, approximately 70% survival at two years. But those who present with a second presentation of acute respiratory failure tend to go on to have recurrent, get in the cycle of recurrent presentations. Mm -hmm. And so what I would do and what we don't do is this of the aftercare of acute NIV. So make sure that we refer them to smoking cessation. Make sure we've shown them how to use their their inhalers. Refer them to pulmonary rehab. Do all the other things that are going to aid their quality of life and their chronic lung disease. But also talk to them about what they would want to happened again, because it is likely to once happened once, it's generally likely to happen again. And if you have those discussions where people feel well, then you're much more likely to get a less distressing conversation for them rather than having it when they're stuck in ED and they're really unwell. But, but also you can have it and you can sort of liaise with the GP on discharge and things like that. So just remember that there's some aftercare to acute NIV or patients who come in for acute NIV as well.
0: So thank you very much, Dr. McLaren, for giving up your time and discussing NIV. As I said, I think our listeners will find it really useful. And if anybody has any other topics that they want to hear about, then please get in touch with the trainees and members committee and check out some of our other podcasts. We've got multiple respiratory episodes and other topics that you might find useful. So thank you once again. Thank you for having me. Please give us your feedback from the podcast via your podcast channels or through our website or email so thank you very much If you enjoy listening to
1: clinical conversations, then maybe you'd enjoy membership with the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. As a member of the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh, you'll have access to the
0: RCPE education portal and access to the evening medical updates and options to view the symposia in person or online. If you would like to learn more about this, then please go on to the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh website for more information. Thank you.